I would call that the million dollar question. Assuming your raise is a $2 million one, and you allocate 50% of that budget. <laughs> if you're raising $4 million, you're allocating 50% of your budget towards customer acquisition, then it's a $2 million question. And I think there, I've seen everything uh, in that space. I've seen, let me start with probably what the most important mistake that I've seen. The most important mistake is probably the underestimation of the customer acquisition cost in certain areas, in certain domains. So for example, I've seen gaming startups think, arbitrarily think, that it could generate a customer for, I don't know, 15, five, $15, $20, and they just take it for granted. They have not done a test, they've not built a funnel yet, but somehow in their deck uh, or in their business plan, their entire business model, their entire financials are predicated upon this out of thin air customer acquisition yeah. cost. It's CAC. They know the term, right? Yeah. CAC. And it, by the time they launch, within the first three days, they realize, oh my God, we just spend $150 for, to acquire these new customers. How are we going to get to our $15 target, right? Yeah. That is by far the number one mistake that I've seen. Not enough early iteration, not enough early testing with very small budgets. Hello, dreamers and action takers. Welcome to another episode of the Want Money, Got Money podcast. I'm your host, Sam Kamani, and my guest today is Dom Einhorn. Dom is the founder and CEO of Unicorn. Now, Unicorn is the largest rural incubator accelerator of its kind in the world. It's located in southwestern France, and its mission is to give entrepreneurs and their families their lives back while helping them build game-changing technology startups. How they do this is by helping tech startup founders scale their startup, help them acquire more users because they understand customer acquisition and how it works and how to reduce customer acquisition costs. And they have proven this by getting multiple apps on the iOS and Google Android, Google Play Store at number one or number two position. So if you are a startup and looking to acquire more users, then this episode is for you. Dom shares everything from secrets of the mistakes that tech startup founders make to how you can scale and grow as well as he is going to share a bit about the startup super cup he is organizing in France where he wants to help a lot more startups and and investors connect so if you are a tech startup founder then this is the episode for you so Dom it's great to have you here on the show would love to know how you got started on this incredible journey yeah, so I started in you know in this business in the digital marketing business in 1993 when I moved from France to the US. Yeah. And early on no one knew about digital marketing. It was a misnomer. In fact, everybody called the internet in the early days the information superhighway. Yes, I remember that. So so all of the all the books that you would buy, you'd see information superhighway with very few references to the internet because the early internet was still mostly consisting of bulletin boards, some chat boards, some early stage ICQ, forums, etc. All those sort of things. And we're talking about the right at the cusp where the very first 
navigators, as we call them, right? Netscape mm-hmm. Navigator, the very first browsers were being conceived. Netscape 1.0 came around yeah. 1994, 1995, I believe. My memory serves mm-hmm. me well. And that was the first time in history where people actually started becoming aware. I was in the U.S. at that point in time, so we actually helped them become aware of the fact that they probably needed some form of an online presence. So we actually set up a small call center. We called businesses. We sold them websites. What's that? What's a website? Why would I need that? Right? So you'd have to (laughs) actually convince them, explain to them. And then basically the typical feedback you would get from businesses, oh, this information superhighway thing that's just a fad. Here today, gone tomorrow. Right? I heard this story 1,000 times over. But I think the interesting thing is I will always remember the very first website that we built. Yeah. And it's pretty funny. It was for a product that I think still exists today that's called Pregnamare, which is a product that basically helps horses get pregnant. Yeah. Right. It was, a, it, was a, it was a contraceptive for horses. We've come a long way since, but we probably built uh, upwards of 2,000 websites between 1993 and 1998. Wow. And then starting 1998, we delved much further into early innings of digital marketing, lead generation, building funnels, and things of that nature. Right? Specifically in the finance, in the travel industry. Those were yes. our strong industries. And we had, at that point in time, every brand under the sun in the space that was a client of ours, uh, including the biggest brands, because we were one of the you know, newcomers, early stage companies in the space. And I personally exited that company along with my shareholders in uh, 2001 when we were purchased by a public Congratulations. company. And 2001 was a very strange time for us. Cycles go up and down. Yes. And I thought I was uh, 31 at a time. And I thought, on, I thought the cycle could go, only go up and to be in New York City on 9 11. Right? I, was, yeah. I had seven, seven meetings planned for that day. And my partner was 45 minutes late. And as a result of being 45 minutes late, he saved our lives. Because wow. we were, we would have been in one of the one of the floors where there was the second impact of the second flight. And after that, I was stuck in New York for about three weeks, and everything stopped. Yeah. People wouldn't respond to calls. People were absolutely in shell shock, and it was a very difficult time where we almost uh, didn't survive. So I would say 2001. Everybody's talking about crises and upsets, the upside downs, up and downs. Obviously, we had 2001, we had 2008, we have what we have today, and some mini crises in between, I shall say. But 2001, for us as entrepreneurs, startup entrepreneurs, served somewhat as a vaccine. Because prior to that, we had seen nothing but success and nothing but the curve going up. And from one day to another, everything stopped. And we had to fight for survival, and we barely made it. But... When I say it served as a vaccine, we learned our lesson from it and we prepared for the next downturn. And that next downturn was in 2008. And we barely felt that one. Regardless of how harsh it was for other startup entrepreneurs, investors, angel investors, etc., we basically had prepared for seven years, not knowing when it would come, how, in what shape or form it would manifest itself. Yeah. But we were just ready to write it out. And I think that's probably an important lesson for today's entrepreneurs, that young entrepreneurs that have seen nothing but glory days, okay, at least until coronavirus. Maybe coronavirus, COVID-19 is their first aha moment 
in terms of realizing, whoa, maybe it's not all that rosy, right? Yeah. But that's what makes you grow, right? And clearly, Absolutely. as history demonstrates, as studies demonstrate, it's during these times of downturns that the best startups being created, yeah. usually from scratch, because we just have no other way of doing it. There's no other choice. When times are plentiful and we have every choice in the world and money is bountiful, we tend to make a lot more mistakes because we have a lot more room for mistakes. Absolutely. But when that's taken away from you and you have to really become a scrapper, you have to really become a bootstrapper. At that point in time, you're a lot more careful with what you do and you have to make ends meet with uh, a lot less resources than are usually available to you. Yeah. Oh, 100% agree. There are going to be more Black Swan events in future. We we just don't oh, know no. when. <laughs> yeah, there, there'll yeah. be another one in five years' time, in eight years' time. Who knows? But there will be for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, going to Black Swan, it's almost like websites in 1993. Nobody believed they existed at first, right? Yes. Until one person actually saw the very first Black Swan. Oh, wow. I've never seen a yeah. Black Swan before. They do exist. At least people yeah. are aware of them now. Right. Yeah. So by being aware, I don't want to say when I was in 2001, I wasn't aware of, I don't think that the term had been coined in 2001. Yeah. Uh, the black swan term. It came, it Probably came later. In 2008, the late, it got really that, popular after that 2008 event because till 2006, seven, everyone was just like, people used to think, oh, property prices never go down in US, yeah. all of US. I still remember yeah. going to US in 2007, eight. I've been going to US nearly every year except this year. And, and yeah, th- this was the common sentiment that, oh, property prices never go down. <laughs> Look, I was living in California at that time. And I remember uh, people that uh, were making Making a lot less than me, only buying four or five properties at a time. Yeah, I was like, "What on earth is going on here?" Right? <laughs> when is this merry-go-round going to stop? It, it was just so obvious that it was not sustainable. But when you're in the middle of the bubble, and that bubble keeps stretching on because it lasted for a while, it it mm-hmm. went on for at least two solid two or three years. I, sh- I should say where that bubble inflated oh, until I- it eventually burst. Yeah, I think for me, it, I felt that after the 2001, to stimulate, everything was getting stopped. To stimulate, there was a lot more money flowing in, and they relaxed all the rules and regulations around around buying property and all, all sorts of things and how much leverage you can have. That's when, it, that's when the, it started, and then it went on till nearly 2007 until everything came crumbling down, and then, yep. yeah. Yep. But it's very interesting. I would love to know a bit about, about Unicorn and what you are up to these days. Thank you. In 2018, so roughly two and a half years ago, I decided to move back to France, where I was born and raised. After a 25-year stint in North America, when I said 25 years, it was 22 years in the US and three years in Panama and Central America. And when I came back, Prior to making coming back, I actually did a lot of research in terms of trying to identify some great places to run a startup from. And probably for most listeners, France would not be on that top list for a variety of reasons, most of which are due to bad communication, I should say. Now, about two and a half years in, I can say with a lot of confidence that France, the country of France, is probably the best or at least one of the very best countries in which to launch your startup in. And that's due to a number of reforms that have taken place in recent years, 
that make access to financing, the ability to launch a business, facilitation of administrative processes, a number of grants, research and development credits, young innovative company credits, make it extremely extractive to launch and nurture your startup in France. So what we decided to be, the old uh, American saying that you probably know is that pioneers take the arrows, the settlers take the gold. So we were certainly the pioneers in terms, not in terms of launching an incubator accelerator, but certainly in terms of launching an incubator accelerator in a rural area. So I'm talking to you from the town of Sala, which has eight and a half thousand souls, roughly speaking. Yeah. Small town in the southwest of France in the Dordogne department. You can look it up online. It's absolutely beautiful. D-O-R-D-O-G-N-E. Yeah, I did have a look. It looks very much like a backyard. <laughs> that you showed me early on. Yeah. And basically, what we did is that we made the deliberate choice to set up shop in a place like this because we realized prior to COVID-19 that a number of the entrepreneurs and investors, early stage investors we were working with, yes. were very frustrated with uh, the life in big cities, the commute times, the travel times, the sky high rents, et cetera, et cetera. So we had all these discussions and we made the deliberate choice to go to Salah because it's one of the most beautiful places in the world, eight and a half thousand people year round, but three million tourists a year. It's the seventh most visited town in France, right? A lot of people don't know that. And France is one of the most visited countries in the world when it comes to it tourism. It is. Uh, I think it is still the most visited country in the world, yes. as of at least prior to COVID. Who knows what's you know which what's one it is today? What's happening now? But it's today always it's between our... France, Spain, and U.S. kind of thing. The most visited. Yeah. And France is always there. During COVID, the most visited country in the world is our bedrooms and our living rooms, I think. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> We're in a captive environment, a marketer yeah. stream. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Online market so, dream, I should say. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So we what we did, so we started in 2018. We very much focus on the U.S. definition of incubation acceleration versus European. There's a core difference. In Western Europe, when you're talking incubation, which was a surprise to me, by the way, when I first came over here, I realized quickly that they were talking about pre-incubation. So a lot of incubators in France, for example, Germany, Spain, Portugal, they will accept entrepreneurs with merely an idea and basically babysit, not a bad term, a system from the very, very early infant stages to the eclosion of their, hopefully, mm-hmm. the business. And they identify seven or eight steps in pre-incubation. And the last step is to actually the incorporation stage. I was like, wow, yeah. this is interesting. But I want no part of this because that's not what we specialize in. So... The U.S. definition is much more proactive. In other words, an incubator, if you want to come to an incubator, you have at least an early proof of concept, whether you launch a product or a service. You show a little bit of traction. You show us that you've been able to convince at least your grandmother to trust you with a little bit of money, seed money, right? Mm -hmm. And then we can actually sit down and talk, right? So at the very minimum, the companies that have achieved these two milestones raising a little bit of money on their own, showing a tiny bit of traction for the product or service, some market validation, then we show some interest as long as they fall within the digital space, right? So we don't touch anything outside of the scope of the digital space. Absolutely. And then 
On the acceleration side, obviously more mature companies, a typical example would be a mobile app that may have 10,000 users but wants to have a million, right? Where we have a much more hands-on approach. We very often become the media investor because a lot of the strategies and the platforms that we build internally, the most powerful of which is called Mobcast, lends itself very well to the acceleration of digital businesses that heavily rely on customer acquisition, on digital customer acquisition, yes. in particular in the mobile app space. So as I'm talking to you, we are roughly number one for 5,000 keywords in the app stores on a language and industry agnostic basis in the digital mining space, in the real mining space, in the travel space, in the wine space, in the finance space, fintech, a lot of fintech clients in that space that that rely customer acquisition. So what we, and you're familiar with this problem. So when you're looking, for example, because I act as both a still a startup or I came from, I can see both sides of the coin. I was an early stage startup for many years. And today I've more morphed into an angel investor and a media investor. Yeah. But the rest of my team, I have about 30 people here in France, basically handle the processes of incubation and acceleration. But typically what is an investor is a round of financing, let's say a seed round or a series A round of financing. And let's use a simple number for sake of sake of example. Let's say it's a million dollars that's being raised for a B2C company. Yeah. Usually what is in the use of proceeds, roughly 40 to 65% of that raise is earmarked, assuming that the, the product is market ready, the service is market ready towards customer acquisition, marketing or customer acquisition. Yeah. But then when you dig deeper on a more granular level and you ask them for a complete pro forma on that marketing spend, very rarely do you get a clear answer from the startup entrepreneur. And that's, in my opinion, a recipe for disaster. That's usually where we come in and we try to assist the startup entrepreneur and say, okay, it's okay if you do not know how you're going to spend that money. It's okay. Relax. Yeah. Right? But let's help you not waste it once you actually go through that process. While I cannot always tell you what it is that you need to do, I can tell you with almost certainty with 25 years of hindsight what it is that you should not do, right? Because yeah. I've made those mistakes as an entrepreneur. So don't repeat them, right? Let's work together. Let's figure out a plan. And let's see how many of those dollars that you actually intend to raise we could possibly replace via the services that we already put at the disposal of the startups that we work with. And that's where the media investment part comes in. So it, we're doing about five to seven media investment deals now a year. Again, on an industry agnostic basis, although areas of predilections, fintech certainly a big area, mm-hmm. gaming being a big area because of the search, the overall search volume. So obviously when you're becoming, when you get a number Absolutely. one ranking for a specific keyword, the organic downloads, they don't trickle in. They come in like a fire hose, right? So it has yes. a a dramatic effect on the acceleration process in terms yes. of customer acquisition, but that's pretty much what we do here. So how does the media acquisition thing work? Say so that is a... So tip, yeah. Yeah, yeah, explain. Typically, we treat media as an investment. When we're looking at striking a deal with a startup that basically 
crosses our checklist, crosses every point of our checklist yes. after we do our diligence, we vet it. We basically come in as uh, as an investor who commits media and specific KPIs, such as number of downloads turning into Y amount of users, okay, yeah. to that startup. And we price that out at the same time a we would do it if we actually made a cash offer, but we take equity instead of cash. So we basically take the entire risk as the media investor, bringing those services to the table, along with a tremendous amount of consulting of actually yeah. doing it right, using tried and proven methods, methodologies in order to get to the end point. So that's very interesting. So in a way, you are helping the startup or the entrepreneur fund their marketing and customer acquisition. Correct. Yeah. Ideally, at the very early stage, we have companies that are f- way further down the funnel. And yes. that's typically, in, in that sense, it's still our bread and butter in terms of revenue generation for what we do here, right? Because yeah. you couldn't potentially, you couldn't possibly live off of paper in early stage startups. We be way too risky. You wouldn't last very long, right? Yeah. So our bread and butter is still to provide those same, same services to more mature companies yeah. on a billing basis. But because we've been doing it for so long now, yeah. we're in a position where we can, quote unquote, afford to offer some of the services for equity for early stage startups. That is a very interesting model. First time I've come across the model. So it's very different to the, the typical tech stars, Y Combinator, or all, all those where it's a, they give you 120, 150,000 for 6% or something like that. It, it's very different to that, I would say. It's certainly a different approach. It doesn't work for everyone. But what we found out is that what it does for us, it, it, it attracts the perfect anatomy of the startup that we're looking for. Yeah. So typically what we found out is that the startup who actually understands the benefits of having that type of high-end media investment plus the consulting that comes with it yes. falls very much within the fold of what we're looking for. And again, we're not looking at bringing in 5,000 startups either, right? Absolutely. Our objective is to work over the next two to three years with uh, 50 to 100 startups, but at a very high level of engagement. That's still a very huge number. Yeah, I mean, in that, in that sense, a lot you know, of, we're yes. in a we're in one building that we occupy in full right now, but we're in the yes. process of taking over literally 50 yards away from where we are right now, 2,500 mm-hmm. square meters of space, hopefully by the end of this month, January, and and build it out to spec within the next six months. So we'll have a combined, we'll be at close close to 3,000 square meters, roughly 30, 30 31,000 square feet of wow. space. That's very impressive. Yeah, just so does... The program, or do you take startups remotely as well, or do all of them have to be based there? So we actually, on our website, unicorninkubator.com, with this unicorn with a Q, as you can see yes. probably behind me, yep. with a Q. <laughs> it's a funny side note. My last name, Einhorn, means unicorn in German. Oh, really? So when I, yeah. So when I go to a German conference, I'm half German. So when I go to a German conference, people always say I have a fake name. They don't believe me. <laughs> Right, that never used to be the case ten, fifteen years ago. But today, everybody says, "Come on, no way." <laughs> so, yeah, on our website, we do have a section that explains remote incubation. We we do handle remote incubation. In fact, we're about to finalize a deal with a clean tech company in Singapore. Yeah, that was created by three PhDs. One of them uh, is French. The second one is from Belgium. The third one is American. 
and they have no intent of uh, coming to France anytime soon. Yeah. So we certainly can do remotely what we do on site. I think the, the core difference is that remote incubation is probably more for companies that are a little bit further down the funnel, a yes. little bit more mature because they can go hands-on and these guys certainly know what they need to do and they're on yeah. a very strong traction already. Uh, whereas a lot of the very early stage startups in the incubation stage, they need a lot of help. They need a lot of babysitting. They need a lot of handholding, et cetera, where it makes more sense to see them actually have coffee with them in the morning, talk about the yeah. challenges, how to overcome them. It's a little bit of everything, right? It's My daughter is 24 now, but at one point in time, she was a teen. It feels like talking to her when she was 12. Yeah. Right. <laughs> in, a, in, in a different domain. Which yes, is perfectly fine. Yes. I, I like doing it, right? Because yeah. I was fortunate enough to have some of those mentors when I was younger that were talking to me like that as well. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So it's it's important. I think the mentoring part is very important. And for again, if you're a startup who is already has traction, you got uh, significant experience. Certainly, remote incubation or acceleration is no problem at all. <clears throat> if you still don't really know what you need to do, yeah. it's better to be where you need to be. Yeah. No, that's great. You have so much experience in, in talking about mentoring and talking about working with hundreds, if not thousands and thousands of founders and startups that you've worked with. And especially with your guys' experience in customer acquisition, what do you think is, or what do you think are some of the key mistakes that young, fresh entrepreneurs make when it comes to customer acquisition? Uh, it's I would call that the million-dollar question, assuming your raise is a $2 million one and you allocate 50% of that budget. <laughs> if you're raising $4 million and you're allocating 50% of your budget towards customer acquisition, that's a $2 million question. And I think there, I've seen everything uh, in that space. I've seen – let me start with probably one of the most important mistake that I've seen. The most important mistake is probably the underestimation of the customer acquisition cost in certain areas, in certain domains. So, for example, I've seen gaming startups think, arbitrarily think, that it could generate a customer for, I don't know, $15, $5, $15, $20, and they just take it for granted. They have not done a test. They have not built a funnel yet. But somehow, in their deck uh, or in their business plan, their entire business model, their entire financials are predicated upon this out of thin air customer acquisition yeah. cost. It's CAC. They know the term, right? Yes. CAC. And it, by the time they launch, within the first three days, they realize, oh my God, we just spent $150 for, to acquire these new customers. How are we going to get to our $15 target, right? Yeah. That is by far the number one mistake that I've seen not enough early iteration, not enough early testing with very small budgets. So when you come to us or to anyone and you claim that your customer acquisition cost is going to be X, don't expect them to take you, take your word for it, right? Yes. Prove it to them. Show that you've been able to generate 100, 500, 1,000 customers at that price. That is scalable, right? Yes. The second mistake, which is very much in line with the first one that I've seen over the years are entrepreneurs who actually have done a little bit of that homework. They've generated 100, 300, 500 customers at X. But then they think that when they scale, the price is going to go down because 
logically thinking, right? You buy more milk, you get a get a price break, right? You buy more of anything in the real world, of material world, you typically get a price break. Typically, in the digital world, as you, that's very often the opposite, right? There's a finite amount. So let's find you find you find a nice little traffic pocket that converts very well. There's a finite amount of it. Once that you can acquire 150 new clients via one channel that performs and generates a customer acquisition cost of $15. Yeah. Once it's over, you have two options. Find another one that converts at the same rate, at the same cost, or venture out, trial and error, and pay a lot more. Yeah. And the more you scale, the more you run out of these, what I call pockets of opportunity that are nice when you find them, and I yes. recommend that you nurture them, but they're all finite by default, right? Mm-hmm. You cannot go to the same guy who has a limited amount of traffic, who's generating 150 clients for you every single month and say, hey, I need 10 times as much. Yeah. Well, what's the guy going to say, right? I don't have any more, right? Mm-hmm. And actually, when you're actually competing against someone else looking to buy that traffic because he converts, you have price inflation. Yes. So the opposite is happening, right? That traffic just becomes a lot more expensive because yeah. it performs at a high rate. Yeah. So... That second problem is very much in line with it. No, now third problem is that sometimes you just have someone who just doesn't know. They're typically engineers, right? They're very strong, product focused, product based. Yes. And amongst them, you have two types. You have the engineer with a big ego, who's going to say, "I will figure it out on my own," and yeah. he's somewhat deep inside his bunker, which is the very <laughs> probably the worst. The word never invest into that guy, right? Yeah. The guy who thinks I'm going to invest the best things in sliced bread in my little bunker here. Yes. Being completely unaware that it's already been done 100 times over because he's got blinders on and he's not paying yes. attention to the outside world. That guy exists more than you think. Oh, lots. Yes. <laughs> You've met them as much as I did, right? Yes. The, and then you have the guy who says, I don't know, but I'm willing to learn. Tell yeah. me. That's the guy you can work with, right? Yeah. Because he's open. And we get that quite often. I'd say, in general, the younger generation, when it, the case I just described yes. was much more commonplace when I started in the business than today. 25 years ago, the engineers thought they knew it all. Yeah. I still meet one occasionally today, but for most of them, it's the opposite. They're wide open and say, look, I don't know. That's why I want to talk to you, right? Can you help us in actually getting this done? Yeah. And that's a healthy relationship that you can build upon. That's great. That's really good. What other difference you did describe about the incubation model? What other difference do you see in North America versus um, Europe when it comes to startups and growth? I think the main difference is on the financing side, where I see an opposite trend. In Europe, there is a tremendous amount of help for very early stage startups. There are a number of grants, guaranteed loans from the bank, which you would never see in the US. Uh, I've never seen them in 25 years, right? Where private, you had to go, you had to go for venture, angel funds, and and early stage, that's impossible. You just they shut the door on you before you even open it, right? So in in France, it's the opposite. You have a tremendous amount of help in the in the very very early innings, the very early stages. You have a very strong R and D credit. Basically, the way the R&D credits work is that uh, any kind of engineering 
that you pay for internally, let's say salary-based engineering internally, you get a 30% credit at the end of the year. So if you don't make any money, the government will actually send you a check for 30% of what you paid your engineers. That's amazing. Yes. And that's one out of many. That's why I was saying the ecosystem for early stage startups is bar none here. You have um, a young innovative enterprise credit, Jeune Entreprise Vente in French, which basically exempts you for up to eight years of any kind of social charges on your salary base. And then you have a number of grants that are available to you. It's interesting in France because you will see the French government on LinkedIn, on Facebook, buying Facebook and LinkedIn ads to promote the fact that they're giving away money. Yeah. It sounds almost absurd, right? The flip side is when you actually get to a point of traction, it becomes more difficult in France than in the US. So that's what I mean. It's actually reversed. Early stage, a lot more help in France to get you going. In the US, you get nothing. Hey, right? You're You're on your own. Call your grandmother, right? Yeah. Ask her to write you a check. And actually, once you've actually proven your concept to us, then it really the doors open up to any kind of venture financing or yes. uh, high-end angel financing, incubators with some money, with, with strong networks, etc. So that's the core difference. No help in the US early stage, a lot of help in France early stage, uh, a lot of help in the US once you're mature, once you have a strong proof of concept, a lot yes. less in, in France. But I think I do prefer somewhat the French model because once you actually have traction, if you are a bona fide entrepreneur, you'll make it. What's holding you back from going to the Americans if if you need to bridge that gap? Yeah. Right? Because we're not 25 years ago where they wouldn't communicate. Now these ecosystems, they have representative offices all over, right? Paris, Bordeaux, Toulouse, et cetera. Again, you're an entrepreneur. You got to figure it out. We're problem solvers. We're not problem creators. Yeah, very true. And it's just, you would not believe most of the people I talk with are based in US and how things have changed there, that it has become prohibitive now for any young person to go and build a startup. Because first of all, as soon as they leave their job, they lose their medical insurance and medical expenses. If something happens to you or anyone in your family can go in millions, one stay in hospital could set you back four or five hundred thousand so it is too much risk so people are not leaving their jobs and starting startups anymore that's a big sort of and the the other way is to go through incubators y combinator but which are they get tens of thousands of applications every year and they select a handful so it is it is very challenging as you said in the early stages but once yeah on that side on that side too there there are other strong incentives specifically for investors and in france at and for people moving over here. So the government made it very easy, for example, for entrepreneurs to get a residency visa in France. That's a fundamental change. To get hired by a company like ours. So for example, we're roughly 30 people here out of 14 different nationalities, right? And that, that, that was easy. There are only a couple of countries that are problematic, but even that we were able to work out. Everything else has been anywhere from easy to very easy. That's and then really the good. incentives to a, an investor. So, for example, if you're a foreign investor and you invest 300,000 euros into a French tech startup, you automatically get a four-year visa, renewable upon expiration for yourself and for your immediate family. And then there is an option B. If you have 30,000 euros plus a master's degree, you get the same benefit. 
So it really created, especially during Trump years, it really created a lot of draft from people coming to uh, to Europe as by way of investment or yeah. by way of employment via a company that is in the French tech ecosystem, which we are. Yeah. So the French tech label is starting to make a name for itself. It initially, initially started only, was initially only reserved to the greater Paris area. Yes. Then the big cities complained, Bordeaux, Toulouse, Strasbourg, Lille, etc. Yeah. said, we wanted to, they got it. And we lobbied very hard in our rural area because we're one of the last ones to get it. And we got it during COVID at, on May 5th of 2020. Oh, that's great. And you have a big event coming up in the next, I don't know, like nine, 10 months or something? We do. We do. Yes. yes. Thanks for reminding me. So I've, I've the whole afternoon dedicated to this today. <laughs> so we're launching the, what's called the Startup Super Cup. You can go to startupsupercup.com. Uh, it was a big write-up on Yahoo Finance as well. Yes. And basically what that event will do is it will cement our philosophy of being able to lead a better lifestyle while at the same time growing and nurturing your startup in a place like Salah. We're hosting it. It will be a physical event with a limited virtual dimension in the hopes that by then, October 1, 2, 3, Friday, Saturday, Sunday of 2021, hopefully we'll close the chapter or the chapter will be close to be closed. And we have we will bring in roughly 1,100 angel investors funds between 100 and 120 startups, digital startups in the fields of artificial intelligence, AR, VR, fintech, robotics, clean tech, ed tech, etc. Yes. And uh, very strong networking opportunities. I would encourage anyone who is interested to pre-register on startupsupercup.com. You'll be on our list. A star-studded speaker list. Ability to present. If you're interested in, in, in joining, presenting, by all means, contact me directly at dom at unicorninkubator.com. Again, unicorn with a Q. I will put all uh, the links to everything underneath in the description and anywhere on any platform this goes. So... Perfect. I pre- appreciate that. Yeah. And hopefully, Sam, you can, you, we can have you as a guest. That'd you can uh, promote your books as well. Yeah. Give you a venue because I know that during COVID, you probably had some time doing that. Yes. Yeah. So that, that is great. And I have this sort of three questions that I ask um, every guest. And is there a book that you are reading right now? It's usually there's two or three books that I'm reading. Right at the same time. The reason for that is I try to give my brain a rest from doing nothing but business with some literature. Right. Yes. So my favorite French writer is Jules Verne, that most Americans will know as Jules Verne, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, being yes. one of his masterpieces. I started reading him when I was six years old. He was the writer who taught me that anything was possible. Right. He quote unquote invented the submarine way before the submarine, 100 years before. He wrote the, the voyage to the moon 150 years before, 100 years before we actually went to the moon, et cetera, et cetera. So he actually proved that it was possible post mortem. So on the literature side, I always try to get at least 15 minutes to 30 minutes. It's almost like a meditation every single day yeah. of doing something different, of reading something more stimulating on that side. Yeah. On the business side, I'm reading a very interesting por- uh, book right now by Brandon King called Hook Points. I'm reading it for the second time. Hook Points being the ability to grab someone's attention in the digital space. As we all know, our attention spans have dwindled down to nothing. Yes. So the idea is to teach you, the entrepreneur, how you can get someone's attention within three seconds or less. Because if you don't, they're gone. 
Yeah. Right. So that's and then all every once in a while I like to read a strong biography of a famous person. In the, in this case, uh, one of the most famous war heroes and politicians in France was Charles de Gaulle. And yeah. I'm reading probably the fifth or the sixth biography of, of of that man from from a different French historian. So I also try to vary the the languages in which I read. It's more stimulating for the brain. So yeah. every day I read uh, when I'm in France. Obviously, I read mostly French. Yes. But I always read English or listen to English English news, business news. I read a little bit of Spanish every day, uh, a little bit of German. You know, German is probably my favorite language. So I read quite a bit of that. Handelsblatt, which is the big German economics paper online yeah. that has a very strong digital digital section as well. That's great. And is there a podcast or a YouTube channel that you follow? You know, I, I randomly browse through. I don't yes. want to say I, I follow, I do I do follow guys like everybody does, Joe Rogan. And it doesn't mean I listen to everybody that he has, but when the guest pops up and the yeah, rest same. is almost, yeah. yeah, the rest I'm just actively searching for a specific keyword because I need a yes. piece of information right this second. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a voracious consumer of media. I don't yes. think there is, I hate to say that, but I don't think there is a bathroom break I go to without reading. Right, at least uh, or listening to 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 a podcast. Uh, Handelsblatt, the German newspaper, I was telling you, has a very strong podcast section with high quality yeah. content. I usually listen to that on the weekends because I tend to listen through, and their podcasts are pretty long, forty five okay. minutes to an hour on average. Other than that, it's quick bite size during the day because I have a lot of people knocking on my door and so everything it, is blitzing. It's a lot more. I'm actually the victim of what I just described, right? Of the yeah. three second attention span. If you really want to get my attention, use a hook point. Yeah. If you don't have a hook point, stay out of the door. <laughs> yeah. I didn't have this question, but now I have. What are some of really good hook points that you have used personally in, in your life to get someone's attention? You know, it's as interesting that you asked that question because before the term hook point was coined, that was also mm -hmm. recent years. I forgot which book that I read, but that line always stuck with me. It was a marketing book I read probably in the early 90s, and the name of the, the author escapes me. But one example that he used was that in order to make a mark, in order to stand out, yeah. rule number one, be different. And then he used an example that stuck with me in my early years. And he said, dog bites man is not news. Man bites dog that is news, right? Mm -hmm. So that would be a hook point. Basically, yeah. the hook point, I think, first of all, I think every business, especially a startup, needs to have strong hook points and needs to spend time developing what those hook points are. For those of you who are not in the US, everybody in the US knows what the elevator pitch means, yes. right? Basically, you go into an elevator, you're first, a person joins you in the elevator, he or she hits number four. She's going out at the fourth level. Now, other times she turns around and looks at you and says, what do you do in life? You literally have eight to 10 seconds to get the point across, right? Mm -hmm. And basically, the interesting thing about a hook point is if that first short hook grabs and engages the user, he or she will give you more time to go beyond that, right? But it really has to hook it hard really has to arise the interest where she may say, okay, she may come up with you at your level. Oh, really? That's interesting because I had such and such. Tell me more. You want to get to that level, right? Because one thing leading to another in that chain of events, you push it. It's all about pull marketing versus push marketing. 
the person that you're engaging, that person has to tell you, give me more, has to give you the authorization, the permission of giving more. And the more you nurture that person for that process, the closer you are to landing him as a client, regardless of what it is that you do. Okay. But that initial hook is very interesting. Now, I've used random stuff where people ask me, so what do you do? I say, I'm a crazy entrepreneur and an even crazier investor. Really? What makes you so? They just gave me the permission to tell them more because I used the adjective yes. crazy, right? Yes. The hardest person to hook is my mother, who is 81 years old. And I'll tell you why. For the last 25 years, around Christmas time, <laughs> recently as last week or two weeks ago, she asks me the same question. Son, tell me again what it is that you do. <laughs> I've told her repeatedly, but again, I must be doing a very bad job because my mom still doesn't get it. A quarter no, century I have end. the same issue because we are not uh, a typical doctor or an engineer or an accountant or a lawyer. That's yep. the old school professions that are known to them. <laughs> that's yeah. why I have the same question. So what do you do? A couple, what is the startup? Right? A couple of years ago, I said, look, if I can't explain to my own mother what it is that I do, I'm doing a horrific job as a marketer, right? Yeah. I have to solve that problem once and for all. So I said, mom, please sit down. I want to tell you right now what I do. My mom used to be a pastry chef, a, a pretty famous one actually in France. Said, okay, mom, let's assume you want to open a pastry shop. And you're asking, wondering, where should I put it? You have three or four options across the street, down the street, up the street, etc. And you still don't know. And then you ask your son, me, son, where should I put my pastry shop? And I look at you and say, mom, I would recommend that you put it right here. Then you say, why? And my answer is, if you put it right here, I can guarantee you that with what I do as a job, as a living, I will drop off five busloads of hungry tourists every single day to your doorstep. That's what I do for my clients, mom. Yeah. And she goes, wow, I think I get it now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Until next year. The other thing that I heard is that in a crowd about describing your startup, that you describe your startup to someone in an elevator pitch or however you have described it. And then ask them after 20 minutes about what your startup is about and if they can answer it and if they can explain to you in a simple way that what your startup is about, then you have done a good job. <laughs> at yeah, that's, probably, that's probably true. But then again, some people have a better attention span than others. And some people yes. have a good short-term memory versus bad short-term memory. So yeah. you don't necessarily have that much influence on that. The only thing you have under your control is the delivery of your pitch. Right, And either that makes sense or it doesn't. Yes, it's true for sure that if they can remember what it is you do, you probably did a better job. But there are all sorts of uh, other factors that come into play at that, at that level, right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Like this my mom, very generic, right? This is a very generic if example. You, if, you, if you explain your artificial intelligence startup to my mom and you, your hook point <laughs> could be excellent, but you ask her 20 minutes later what that was about, if what she remembers, no. she'd probably tell you she's hungry right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. It all depends on this is in the term of a, a networking event to do with startups and all that yeah. that you go to. It makes and, more sense in that, in the, yeah, in that, that ecosystem. That, yeah. 
Yeah. But then even then you hear so many different things in the same night. It's hard to remember names when you have met like 25 different people in one evening and everyone spiel. And you remember two or three, the most memorable ones. So it's uh, once again, as you said, it's having that hook that person gets interested and listens to the whole thing and their eyes don't just glaze over after five, six seconds. Not a good sign. Yeah, yeah. So now that's great. Final question. And that is, do you have a ask? Are you looking for anything? Are you looking for startups to apply to your incubator? Are you looking for um, deal flow? What, what are you looking for? Yeah, or so basically, yeah, basically an incubator accelerator, the best way to describe it, it's an ecosystem that is almost uh, much, very much like Uber and Airbnb uh, that requires a balance between supply and demand. Right. So we're always looking for quality startups. We're always looking for investors. One thing I didn't invest, didn't mention is that we typically uh, invest, including myself personally, in every startup that we decide to to, to sustain, to, to nurture through the system. Yes. And we also have more and more angel investors from around the world that are contacting us that want to be part of what we do. Because the very first startup in the ARVR space that we started incubating a mere 10 months ago will go to market. It will be our first exit sometime in January, at the latest February in Canada and in Germany. Fantastic. So we'll have a A to Z proof of concept from early incubation yes. all the way to public markets. Yeah. But yeah, I would say always looking for angel investors to work with as well as startups. In particular, the first question we ask ourselves once we actually find a startup that we like is how quickly can we add value to what it is that they do? And typically what that boils down to is our ability to come in as a media investor and really accelerate the pace of what they launch themselves on. So, for example, if we, if you have a strong mobile app and you're ranked uh, number 500 in the app ecosystem on the yeah. core keywords of your choice and you have an excellent app, talk to us. We, we can help you. We can grab it, help you gravitate to the top. We can help you acquire more customers more quickly. On a, obviously more affordably since we're engaging mostly on an equity basis than uh, pretty much anybody else. That's our specialty. Yeah. Oh, that is absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much, Dom, for your time. I will put all the links um, in the description to to all the things that you are doing these days, including your event and your incubator. Yeah. And best of luck for for yeah, 2021. Thank, thanks a lot. Hope to be able to host you personally and, and see you at the event. I'll, I'll send you a personal invitation. And okay. I know it's getting late in New Zealand. Pleasure for, uh, you know, to, to be here today. That's great. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Want Money, Got Money with Sam Kamani. Hope you enjoyed the show and got some valuable insights that would help you in your startup or your business. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate this show on your favorite platform. It would be extremely helpful and I just cannot tell you how much I would appreciate that.